Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Blaine Higgs is the premier of New Brunswick. He's one of the six premiers who sent a letter to Justin Trudeau warning him that C-69 and C-48 could damage national unity. You'll hear Blaine Higgs as well as Sean Simpson from Ipsos polling showing that the liberals are down 14% in popularity over last year and Justin Trudeau's job performance, only 31% satisfaction. Jane Gerster is a reporter, online reporter for Global News. She'll talk to us about her story about the RCMP and indigenous people and protesters everywhere in the world. But how effective are protesters on governments? We'll find out. And Doctors Without Borders, Trish Newport is the coordinator for the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, she's Canadian. And Trish Newport will talk to us about Ebola there and the decision by the World Health Organization to declare it not a global emergency, at least not yet. Yesterday, I recorded two interviews with two premiers, Premier Kenny and Premier Blaine Higgs of New Brunswick. 99% of what we do on this program is live, but I had the opportunity to record the interviews with the premiers, and I took it because they're two of the six Canadian premiers who sent a letter to Justin Trudeau warning the prime minister about bills C-69 and C-48. And, Mr. And, and telling the prime minister those two pieces of legislation were actually a threat to national unity. Mr. Trudeau says they're playing politics. Anyway, I want you to hear my conversation with the Premier of New Brunswick about that letter, about Bills C-69 and C-48, about his thoughts about the Prime Minister, and we also got into the issue of Quebec, equalization payments, and, of course, Energy East. Have a listen. Premier Higgs, thank you very much for the time. Uh, you've been meeting with Premier Kenny of Alberta, and I imagine, in fact, I know that the Energy East pipeline issue came up for discussion. It's certainly something that we've talked about a great deal on the air. It's what many Canadians want. Is that project still worth talking about? Is it a viable opportunity looking forward? Well, it's certainly it's a it's a it's a viable opportunity, uh, and certainly as long as there there isn't any other outlet that's been identified and put in service. And at this point, um, uh, Alberta's in the same situation. You know, it has been for for the last uh, five six years that uh, they just can't get to market. And um, and so in that sense, any any pipeline project that gets uh, Alberta's oil, um, Saskatchewan's oil to market is still a viable option. And so we, uh, we, he's very focused on it, as am I, and we have alignment right through to uh, uh, to the uh, to Alberta from New Brunswick, and uh, and of course, with the only uh, kind of caveat to that would be uh, Quebec. I'll ask you about that in just a moment, but I'd like to ask you about the letter that was sent to Justin Trudeau and signed by you and five of your fellow premiers. 
what what's the message that Mr. Trudeau needs to understand from that letter? Because he's more than less just written it off and said that your concerns about national unity are just playing politics. Well, you know, I think it's unprecedented, both in his actions, but uh, in, in, in the fact of, of uh, six premiers signing a, a letter, 60% of the population signing a letter that says we, we do not support the, the Bill C-69 going through without the full amendments of the, uh, of the Senate. And, um, and the same, same goes with the, with the, the tanker bill. Uh, Bill C-48, I believe, uh, the, the, uh, it, it's kind of shocking that he dismisses uh, something that, I, I guess if we try to think back, when was the last time 60% of the population or five premiers, and I would say we could, in the case of Bill C-69, we could probably add three or four more provinces to that that would not agree with a bill being passed that basically shuts down our, our resources getting to market. And and that's what he's doing. And he's basically single-handedly crashing our economy. National unity is challenged by C-69 and C-48. Again, Mr. Trudeau uh, accuses the premiers of playing games with the national unity issue. You said on my program in December last year that we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or a notion. We've really, push has really reached shove now, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yes, it has. And, and I feel it directly here in, in New Brunswick because we're kind of cut off from the rest of Canada. And that's why I've spent a lot of time traveling and talking. And I was, I was really appreciative of, of Premier Kenny coming here to New Brunswick. I mean, he's only been in office for a couple months. And, uh, but to come here and make this uh, uh, one of his first stops along the way um, and meeting with Premier Legault uh, this week as well, um, it, it says a lot about, you know, his passion for the country. And, and what really impressed me is, is, is he's, he wants to share the resources with the rest of Canada. I mean, I've said I, I value the transfer payments because we need them. I would like to get out of relying on them. But um, I, I think we, we owe um, not only a, a gratitude, but we owe an obligation to help resource uh, economies get to market. And, uh, and I feel an obligation for that, and I think we all should, every province should. Premier Higgs, how does this actually work? How can it work? But you, you know, I've spoken with uh, Mr. Shear about the energy corridor. I know you support that. I think it's a great idea. But again, you run into some challenges along the way, and some are put in the uh, some obstacles are raised by the province of Quebec. Uh, how is either the Energy East program resurrected and made doable, workable, and a benefit to everyone in this country, or the energy uh, corridor? How do we go about that? Well, I think the, the corridor uh, concept has to be the, the focus right now, because if we're going to get investors to look at our, our country and our individual provinces, they have to have a, a way to get to market in terms of resource management. And in the case of the corridor, whether that be hydropower coming out of, out of Quebec, or whether it be oil or gas coming from the West, or at one time, I would hope, from even New Brunswick, um, or communications, whatever the, the case may be, uh, we need to have that link once again, as we had many, many years ago with the railroad and, and the initiatives that built our nation. We need to have that once again across the country. So it, a federal government should be dealing with this issue and saying, you know, we have a nation that is mutually supported and benefits benefit by our, our us being a nation. And and certainly in the conversations I've had with Premier Legault, he, he understands, you know, that $13 billion that he gets on transfer payments is pretty important to his province. And and the the the, the two point six I think we get is is extremely important to New Brunswick and like thirty percent of our budget, but 
I think that the people of Quebec w- w- would be very, um, you know, understanding and appreciative that this this whole concept of a corridor helps Quebec as much as it helps anywhere, and it takes uh, tankers or rail cars out of, out of the, uh, reduces that operation in the province. There is a, a not only a I guess a national building opportunity here, but or nation building, but it, it's an economic um, opportunity that we're losing, and we will lose as we transition. Uh, I think we're in a transition economy. I think we should be using our resources as long as we're using resources, and they should be our own. And uh, and th- that's not to say we're prolonging uh, a fossil uh, fuel-based economy, but we're using our resources while we are doing that and while they're available to us as we transition to a, a greener economy through an emission targets, which we're all bought into. We're all on that same page to reduce emissions. And we have an output-based pricing model here in New Brunswick that is very, uh, you know, uh, the focus is on on emitters and and the uh, industry pays. It's impossible to get anything done. It's impossible to get the energy corridor built. It's impossible to get energy east built. It's impossible to achieve the objectives that you just outlined if there's no relationship or a very marginal relationship between the federal government of Mr. Trudeau and the provinces. The provinces are saying, look, here's what we need. Here's what our requirements are. Here's how we want to cooperate with you, or at least you cooperate with us. But if the door is closed in Ottawa, what can you do? We're doing it. We're doing it with this alignment, with alignment not only from that particular letter, but the, the intensity is only going to increase because uh, we're, we're not going to let uh, someone single-handedly, um, you know, destroy our, our resource-based economy and, and have and, and what we should be in a transition economy go to an, a collapsing economy. I mean, Jack Mintz just recently had an article about the only one country is contemplating destroying its own resource sector, and that's Canada. And, and it just doesn't make any sense. And investors have warned Mr. Trudeau about that. They've they've written him letters and told him that we want to... Not only... Sorry, go ahead. You're correct, Roy. But not only warned him, actually done it through through moving out of of Canada. Right. I mean, look at the the dollars that have exited Alberta particularly. Yeah. Dollars that have exited New Brunswick as well in, in, in our gas industry that we were, you know, are once again looking at on a regional basis. But... It's real. These dollars are private sector dollars. There seems to be a philosophy in Ottawa that we'll just tax people more, whether it be through a carbon tax or any other uh, tax system that can be invented. This carbon tax is just the start of a new taxation system that will keep on taking. Well, and it will keep on taking immediately after the federal election of Mr. Trudeau is reelected. Premier Higgs, is there any opportunity... Do you see any opportunity to work cooperatively and mutually beneficially with the current prime minister? Well, certainly in, 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 in allowing Canada to continue its strength as a, as a resource-based nation, as again, while we are certainly uh, transitioning, is it, for anyone that thinks we can just shut the switch, flick the switch, and let people pay, I just can't m- make the connection on where... Uh, how are our services going to be paid? I mean, how are we going to maintain our standard of living that we're enjoying if the revenue base dries up? What, what, what am I missing here? And and that's the part that we all accept that climate is changing. We all accept that reducing emissions. The issue we don't accept is that we we have a nation here. We're blessed with a nation that has is resource rich, and for some reason, uh, we're trying to make a um, you know. A, basically a sacrifice in our own country that will not change the world, but it certainly will change Canada.
and it certainly will put us at a disadvantage with, with other trading partners. I keep going back to something Mr. Trudeau said just a few days after taking office. When he was interviewed by the New York Times, and he said his ambition for this country, for Canada, is for it to become the first post-nation state. I'm not quite sure what that means, but the picture's getting more clear for me all the time. Well, no, uh, on, on, in terms of words, I wouldn't be quite sure what that would mean as well. But it's certainly, if this is what he's been uh, trying to achieve, uh, it, it's direct, directionally misguided for sure. It, it, it's really sad. Yeah, uh, that we're seeing this direction, and uh, and I, 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 but I do think provinces are uh, waking up. I, I do think that we're seeing this, uh, this what I would call a, a coalition of concerned provinces that are basically saying we can't sit idly by and watch our nation be completely uprooted by um, by someone who who seems to have lost touch with with the realities of of an economy. And if you look at the most recent polling, uh, specifically released by Ipsos uh, just two days ago, it shows that um, Mr. Trudeau has lost the support of voters in every province other than Quebec, and he's down 14% over last year at this time. He should be receiving a message. Premier Higgs, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. And thank you, Roy. I appreciate the opportunity. So there's uh, the interview recorded yesterday with the Premier of New Brunswick. And that Ipsos poll that I was referencing was done, of course, for Global News exclusively. And it does show the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau, the Liberal government under Justin Trudeau, losing 14 percent support across the country. And they have the support, majority support, in only one province, the province of Quebec. Over the last month, the Liberals have lost the support they had enjoyed in the province of Ontario and the province of British Columbia. They're at 31% nationally. The Conservatives are at 37% nationally. And Mr. Trudeau's job approval is at 32%. On Twitter, on my Twitter account, at The Roy Green Show, there's been a lot of response to my tweeting the results of an Ipsos poll for Global News. And the Ipsos poll shows that the Liberal Party of Justin Trudeau is sinking, and sinking significantly over the last year. They've lost 14% support across Canada, and now there's only one province in this whole country where the majority of people who were polled say they support the Liberals, and that's the province of Quebec. There's a lot of interest in this poll. A lot of interest. And uh, Justin Trudeau's job performance rating, as I understand it from the Ipsos poll, is 32%. 32% approval rating. I'm seeing a lot of tweets saying, how come it's that high? Sean Simpson is the vice president of Ipsos, and Sean joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Sean, thank you for taking the time. Uh, thanks for having me, Roy. So just the fundamentals of this poll, what, 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 are, the, what are the most basic numbers? Mm. Well, there are, uh, there are three. Uh, and they're all uh, negative for the for the incumbent liberals. Uh, the first is that only 32 percent believe that the Trudeau government deserves to be reelected. And uh, as you can probably guess, that's likely not enough to form government. Uh, the second is that, um, you know, the, the proportion of people who approve of, of the uh, of the government is 36 percent. So a little bit higher than the proportion who believe they deserve reelected. But 36 percent is quite low, particularly when, uh, you know, even a year after the election, it was still around 60%. And the third most important figure is 
that uh, the Conservatives are ahead of the Liberals by six points with only four months to go. So that's six points. Were the Conservatives ahead of the Liberals with four months to go? How significant is that, given that time frame? Well, uh, I mean, four months is a lot in politics, but for two of them, uh, people won't be paying attention, right? And uh, we saw a precipitous drop for the Liberals in the wake of SNC-Lavalin, and uh, they, they were down about 29% at one point, and now they're back up to 31%. But things have, have stabilized. There, there isn't the fluctuations that we saw when SNC-Lavalin was in, was in the news. And so I think for the next two months or so, we'll probably be in this holding pattern while people go off and enjoy their summer. And then we might start to see things shift when the election starts. So I mean, even though there's four months to go, there's really only two months of... Uh, 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 people really paying attention and locked into politics. Now, of significance is that the provinces of Ontario and British Columbia have most recently switched to the Conservatives. That's right. We've got uh, we've got the Tories ahead by five in BC, uh, and we've got the uh, Tories ahead by by six in Ontario. You know, a lot of people uh, think or of the belief that uh, Doug Ford's current unpopularity in Ontario, his approval rating is only thirty percent, uh, so lower than the prime minister's actually, might act as an anchor on on the on the Tory brand in the province. But we're not seeing that right now. We've got the Tories ahead by by six, and even in Atlantic Canada, the Conservatives have a double-digit lead. Uh, and remember, they hold no seats there right now. It was a liberal sweep in 2015, so uh, they're poised to pick up uh, a number of seats likely in Atlantic Canada. Sean, are the liberals in danger from behind as well? The conservatives are ahead, but what about the parties that are trailing the liberals and will have them in their sides? Specifically, let's begin with the NDP. Well, the NDP is at, at 18% uh, and, uh, and is, is quite listless right now. Uh, their best showing is in Ontario at, at 22%, so by far in, in, in third place. Uh, in, in Quebec, where they hold, uh, I think, 15 seats at the moment, um, they've only got 10% of the vote in Quebec, so they will likely lose virtually all of those seats. It's not looking good for the NDP, and the Green Party seems to be showing a little bit of momentum at 6% nationally, but they're able to to concentrate some of that support in, in British Columbia and even in Ontario. And I, I think people are starting to believe that a vote for the Green is no longer a wasted vote. They did well in a by-election in BC. They've got a seat in Guelph, Ontario. They're the official opposition in, in, in Prince Edward Island. And the stronger that the Green Party Party is, uh, they will likely be taking votes from the Liberals and the NDP, and so the Tories absolutely love it. Now, how often will voters say, tell a pollster, yeah, I'm thinking of the Green Party only because they want you to think more highly of them. Mm. Maybe they think that's what you want them to say. How much of that is there? Well, we, we take a, uh, an interesting approach with the, with the Green Party in our polls. We actually don't prompt them as a party. We learned about a decade ago, <clears throat> pardon me, that if you do, people will say, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for Green Party. And what they actually mean is, well, I don't really like any of the other options, so I'm just going to say that for a protest, or 
I'm not going to vote, uh, actually, so I'm just going to say Green Party so that it, it sounds like I'm engaged in, in politics and, and going to vote. So we, we we're actually um, you know, quite accurate with, with our Green Party estimate at 6%. I know it's lower than, than, than maybe some other polls are showing, but I think it might be because we deal with it a little bit differently. Does Justin Trudeau wear this failing now, this 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 uh, this not even slowing down of momentum, but reversing of reversal of momentum for the Liberals. Does it all rest on Justin Trudeau? Well, I, I, I think an extremely large portion of it is because we can't say, well, it's because Andrew Scheer is performing so well. You know, I, I think a lot of people still don't know who he is. He's not getting the airtime um, that, uh, you know, the leader of, of, uh, of the opposition would, would hope to have at, at this stage uh, in the game. So uh, Trudeau is is um, uh, was once their greatest asset, is now perhaps one of their the, the party's greatest liabilities. Uh, constituencies that he uh, was able to capitalize on back in the 2015 election, uh, predominantly women, predominantly millennials, uh, are no longer supporting him to that same extent. And the only group of people across the country where he, he still has a significant advantage, aside from Quebec, is is people with university university degree. Uh, but virtually every other group uh, is uh, no longer is an advantage for the Liberals and is, is siding with the Tories. Sean, I'm also interested in something else you found, and that is that almost 10% of Canadians say they would vote for a party other than the usual party. Uh, and I know the, the Green Party fits in there. But what does that 10% actually represent? Mm. Yeah, so the, the, the 10% of uh, people who would pick a non-traditional party, so not conservative, liberal, NDP, or, or, or bloc in Quebec, we know that 6% of them are, are Green Party. And then we've got about 3 to 4% who say some other party. And, uh, you know, that could be the Communist Party or, you know, whatever the fringe candidates are. It could be uh, independence. So, for example, we know uh, that Jody Wilson-Raybould, for example, uh, and uh, Dr. Jane Philpott are going to run as independents. Uh, and it could also be uh, uh, Maxime Bernier's uh, People Party, right? Um, so each of those just takes a, a little slice of the pie, um, and uh, and we aggregate it together, and we've got you know three or three or four percent who uh, are just getting fed up with uh, with the the traditional parties. Uh, we know from a lot of the polling that we do that uh, you know, Canadians aren't exactly thrilled with their leaders. They uh, believe that they're out of touch, that they're not responding to uh, the issue priorities that, that, that keep them up at night. Uh, pocketbook issues, for example, issues of affordability, uh, which, which aren't being addressed. And so they're, they're turning to, uh, to other parties to, to try to fill that void. One of the things that I hear over and over again, and I've heard it from election to election to election, is why do they keep attacking each other? Tell me what you're going to do for me. Tell me what your party's going to do for me. Don't tell me the other guys are no good. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, I think what people are, are are looking for in the absence of of a, of a definitive leader for, is is some leadership on policy issues. Uh, you were just talking about the fact that you had um, uh, Mr. McMillan from Cap on. You know that reminds me of, of pipelines. And there's a, there seems to be a growing consensus in Canada that uh, a pipeline is in the national interest, and we just we just need to get it done. Uh, there's the belief in Canada that things are becoming less affordable, whether it's housing, whether it's, it's transportation, whether it's, it's cost of food, but nobody's really 
stepping up to the plate to to say what they're going to do about it. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest opportunities at the moment is for a party to actually address some of these key issues that um, Canadians are worried about and believe that our leaders should be tackling, but instead you know, we're, we're tinkering in the margins with, with things like cannabis and, and, and other things that aren't at the top of the list. No, I mean, people aren't even talking about it, really. It's, it's not a topic of conversation. If you bring up the issues that matter to Canadians in this country, as you just pointed out, those are the issues, not, not what the political parties are, are telling us is most significant to them, at least the Liberals. Now, in the 30 seconds we have left, are the Conservatives heading toward majority government territory here? I think not. Not yet. Um, I think a big question is going to be uh, is going to be Quebec, and the other question is whether or not Trudeau can consolidate the progressive vote uh, around the Liberal banner. At the moment, uh, almost a quarter of Liberal voters say that they disapprove of the Prime Minister's performance. So he's going to have to change some minds uh, within his own party ranks in order to stop the bleeding. Sean Simpson, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Uh, Vice President of Ipsos Canada. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jane Gerster is national online journalist for Global News, and uh, I was reading Jane's story today, the RCMP, you'll find it at globalnews.ca. The RCMP was created to control indigenous people. Can that relationship be reset? And this is following the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls inquiry. Jane, as I read your story, and I read about the individual experiences of, uh, of, of, of women within the First Nations, within the indigenous community, and then I read about how the RCMP was formed. This is not a relationship that is in any way healthy. This is a relationship that, as you say, you have to, you have to, we have to determine whether it can be reset. How would you describe, and please re- tell our listeners how the RCMP was formed. Well, the RCMP was created by Sir John A. Macdonald, specifically kind of as a way to colonize the West, um, not the way the U.S. did it. So the U.S. had a really, really, you know, violent colonization when they were kind of spreading West and settling, and Canada didn't want to repeat that. And so Sir John A. Macdonald kind of um, took his cues from from the Royal Irish Constabulary and said, hey, we're going to create a paramilitary organization. They're going to go in. They're going to get the Indigenous people who are already on this land under control. They're going to make it possible to build a railway. And in doing so, they're going to make it possible for... Uh, Europeans to spread west. And the relationship has not been healthy between indigenous peoples and the RCMP. You started your story uh, with going back to 2008 and Marge Hudson, who was sent uh, to the Blood Vein First Nation in Manitoba to investigate allegations that one of the RCMP, one of her colleagues in the RCMP, had sexually assaulted a teen girl. She was given a wink and a nod instructions. Talk to us about that, please. 
Yeah, so she, you know, she is um, from Barron's River First Nation in Manitoba. She's working in Winnipeg at the time. Um, now, the RCMP kind of has no comment on these allegations, but, but she alleges that kind of in that meeting, you know, she was told, go up and kind of, you know, deal with this. And the implication to her was really clear. It was kind of sweep it under the rug. Now, I can't, you know, I can't uh, speak specifically to... Um, to what kind of happened next. Um, I, I do know, however, that this is something that historians have highlighted happening in the past. And a lot of the concerns, you know, kind of the motivation for the story was a lot of the concerns that are being raised in the most recent kind of MMIWG report are concerns that have been flagged over and over again throughout Canadian history. Um, you know, and, and kind of we always see that very same response. You know, we apologize. We're trying to do better. You know, here are the new cultural awareness training reports that we're doing. And I think um, Marge's point that she kind of illustrated is great, but this is happening over and over again. Like this has happened forever and nothing seems to be actually stopping these scenarios from occurring. So how then does the RCMP move forward? What do, what do they need to do? You spoke with the criminologist who looked at that aspect of it. What, what is, what's necessary from the RCMP? It really depends on who you ask. I mean, the, the kind of starting point that, you know, several of the people, including historian Steve Hewitt that I spoke with in the story is, is we have to understand this. A lot of people don't really understand why the RCMP was created or why, you know, history is still very much kind of happening now. Um, and a lot of people don't really understand the RCMP's relationship with the federal government. Like, they were created by the federal government. We've had n lots and lots of kind of um, concerns raised throughout history about what that means in terms of, you know, who's actually controlling the force, um, you know, and really the starting point that a lot of people say is we have to understand this. We have to start by just knowing the history, and, and that's hard because the RCMP is a symbol of national identity, mm. so you kind of come up against that. It is. It's, a, it's, it's um, a cornerstone identity factor when you think RCMP, when you think Canada, you think RCMP globally. You, you write in, those, in, in your piece, what exists now is a systematic disregard and antipathy. This is according to Nadine Koval, a lawyer with Merchant Law, which is representing plaintiffs in a proposed $600 million class action suit against the RCMP and the federal government over their handling of the MMIWG investigations. And there's another line that, that ties into this that caught my attention, uh, catch anybody's attention. If an indigenous family contacted the police and indicated their 16 to 26-year-old daughter, sister, niece, had not come home as expected or was missing, the almost invariable reply was, perhaps she's partying, is she with her boyfriend, or anything to, under, uh, to avoid undertaking an investigation. Uh, is, is that, the, is that the, the view of the RCMP across the board? They say it's not. They've been really clear. I mean, Commissioner Brenda Lucky apologized last summer and said, we've heard you, we know we need to do better, and we will do better. I think one of the things that, you know, the people I've spoken to, and indeed, actually, there's a Human Rights Watch investigator whose work is quoted in the final report from the inquiry, and she says, like, you know, this is always the case when we investigate police, you know, allegations of police um, abuse or kind of overreach, is that they will, like, hold up these new policies to us and be like, look, our policies are great. They're new. They're in line with, you know, the international standards. And she says it's really about how they're being enforced. And so, you know, 
it's not really my position to say, like, this is the uniform, you know, kind of view of everyone in the Mounties. They have some great policies. What a lot of the people I've quoted in this piece are saying is that we need to really look at how those policies are playing out because you have to remember that, you know, national headquarters are in Ottawa and you have, you know, two man, two woman detachments right. in very rural spots in Canada. Jane, thank you very much for the time. Thanks for the story. It reminded me as I was reading it of the many conversations I had with former RCMP officers and civilian employees, women who came forward to talk about how they were sexually assaulted and bullied in their years in the force. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Jane Gerster, National Online Journalist with Global News. A headline today, Hong Kong leader apologizes, suspends extradition bill. So after massive public demonstrations and clashes with police in Hong Kong over an extradition bill, I'm sure you've seen the videos, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, says she's now putting the legislation on hold. And this is because, specifically because, of the massive protests against this government initiative. So the question becomes, how effective are public protests in trying to persuade governments to take action that responds to and is responsive to the demands of the protesters? 1,600 students in 1,600 cities walked out over climate action, uh, walked out of school in over climate action in May. There's been the gilets jaunes, the uh, yellow vests in France. The protests were weekly, and they became violent, and they forced the Macron government to back away from announced policies. And in the United States in 2017, the Women's March became the largest protest in American history. And an interesting piece of information, uh, 2011 Time magazine announced the protester as the person of the year. Well, think about that. That was 2011. This is 2019. Joining me on the program is Roberta Rice. She's an associate professor of politics at the University of Calgary, co-editor of a collection of essays in a book titled Protest and Democracy. Professor Rice, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on your show. This is great. Well, let's look at what happened in Hong Kong. Yeah. Because, because when I think of Hong Kong, I think of the semi-autonomous place it used to be. And then China took over the management, if you will, of Hong Kong and assured that the semi-autonomous nature would, for the most part, continue. Uh, and now the people of Hong Kong, Hong Kong became very, very, very enraged, obviously, over this proposed extradition bill. And we saw the, the, the protests on the streets and they forced, they forced the chief executive, the government of Hong Kong, to back off. And what I see is they forced the government of China to back off. Yeah, that's a really impressive uh, a victory for them. Um, really sort of unexpected that they could have such a direct impact on their political system. You know, I, I, would, I, I can see another government, other governments, like maybe the Macron government backing off to the yellow vests because of the continuous uh, demonstrations that took place week after week. But I would not expect the government of, of, of China to back off. I would expect them to, to, to really just strong arm their way through this, but they didn't. They backed off. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? It, it does speak volumes. It also speaks to the, the role of social media and activists um, being able to sort of uh, 
you know, live stream their protests and, and really cast a light on the government and, and focus on their reactions to the protesters in a way that they couldn't do that in the past. Social media has become a weapon for protesters. It really is an important tool, yes. Now, now for, 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 for those whose protests are legitimate, also for those whose protests are, are less than legitimate, um, we can yeah. get, into, get into all of that. But uh, um, may I ask you for a composite of the protester of 2019 globally? Is there such a thing? Oh, the 2009? Yeah, the, yeah. there's a bit of a difference. Uh, the 2011 uh, protester was the composite back in... Uh, okay, tell us about the 2011 protester. Yeah, and linked to today. They really are known as the sort of the precariats. They're highly educated, sort of underemployed young people. They're really sort of millennials with, with, who are very sort of technologically savvy, who have uh, university degrees, and there's just no uh, full-time jobs. They're all contracts, employees, they're professionals with very insecure positions or unpaid interns. And they have this sort of frustration with the sort of not just the economy, but democracy as well as being not having a voice in it. So it's about political and economic exclusion. So what are the expectations then? If you're a protester, if you're forming a protest group and you have an issue with, with, with your government, we certainly have in Canada, we have issues with, with, fed, with the federal government, with provincial governments. Uh, it, it, do, do, do governments and democracies... Because your book is about protests and democracies yes. interacting, living with one another, one being affected by the other. Do governments have any any uh, um, fundamental interest in or or time for protests at the beginning before they're forced into action like Hong Kong was? Well, I think the idea is, um, is, is, like, the government should really keep an eye on the streets because the streets is where um, it sort of reveals um, sort of what the democracy or the government is lacking. So the issues that are not being properly addressed by government show up in the streets. Right? So it's in the government's interest at the beginning before a protest uh, moves into a massive protest that turns violent to really address some of those concerns and take them seriously because then they, if a government ignores them or tries to repress them, uh, they have a tendency just, just to sort of boil up and become much bigger than they would have been. So the idea is to sort of um, not either sort of talk to them, negotiate with them, uh, placate them in some way, or try to address what is the root cause before it turns into something that... And one protest will give life to another. Yes, they really do have a sort of a spin-off effect. If one, one sort of protest movement has some success, it actually inspires others to come out. So you're a university professor. You're, you're, you're in a class with a group of Young people, how much interest in, is there in the whole idea of, of public protest? Oh, even in, in Calgary, which is not known for being that sort of contentious or protest-oriented, uh, uh, the students really, when I, especially when I talk about the idea of the precariat, so the desperate generation, those underemployed, highly educated young people, they get really uh, emotional about it and very interested in it, that, that sort of they're not anti-system, but the system is sort of anti-them, right, that they don't have a place in it, and, they, and that really, I was surprised um, by how uh, emotional they get and, and how interested they are in this topic. This is something we've talked about on the air uh, on a number of occasions, and it's one of the issues, one of the subjects that always has longer 
reaction time, if you will, than many others. Because I'll continue to get stories weeks and sometimes months after we air one of these segments from someone who says, by the way, I heard that segment that you did on on underemployed young people who have a degree, who went to university, who paid all the money, who have the student loans and don't have a career starting now. And and, and I'll see, you know, I I know people tell me it's my fault. I should have chosen better. But... And then, then there's a, after that, after that, but the uh, the frustration and the anger hits the page. Yes, like they can follow everything right, but they still can't get they can't follow right. The either the Canadian dream or the American dream is out of reach, but it's not because they're doing anything wrong. It's just that the whole system uh, has shifted around them, and and they can't get a, a foothold into it. So a lot of the protests come from students, but oftentimes their parents are also accompanying them because they're frustrated yeah. for their own. Uh, children. Well, they are because they're still yeah. taking care of their kids in many cases. Yeah, exactly. They're 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 living from home. They have a, a no sort of possibility uh, of of ever attaining what their parents attained, right? Even despite having the extra the tools of education and and networks. So even in the Arab Spring, one of that is still continuing now. It's called the New Arab Spring or Arab Spring 2.0. What's happening in Sudan and and other parts of of the and uh, Northern Africa and the Arab world? Uh, they have one of the because of the precarious condition of young people. That one of the most uh, for the developing world a delayed marriage rate because they just don't have the security or the jobs to actually do it. Yeah, and I've seen that. That's also the case in, in North America. Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, so people. Yeah. And so one of the things about Occupy, it wasn't just about uh, protesting. It was about coming together, like a collective sense of dignity for people who are just underemployed to actually use their skills uh, to help uh, others. Right. So, and within the Occupy encampments, you had like professional librarians who were out of work organizing like uh, like library committees, engineers uh, putting together tents. Uh, trying to use their skills, so and chefs actually unemployed chefs cooking for people in the encampment. So it was a way for them to actually practice their skills that the market won't let them do. Professor Rice, when we look at the um, the upcoming federal election, we're four months out. The stories are daily now because this is an election with more emotional content than any in recent time that I can remember. How does protest factor in? To what's going on between today or yesterday and October the 21st? Hi, yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, question. Um, definitely um, one of the things in social movement uh, studies we understand is how important uh, political regimes are, the political government in power really sort of shapes the types of protest movements that form. Right, so as governments sort of shift either from the left to the right, right, it will sometimes spark a new uh, rise of protest movements. Uh, against the government, right? So it is very important, um, the, the sort of the type of government in power and how they um, think of, of protesters and some of the policies, if they're rolling back some hard-fought uh, rights, then you will get a new generation of protesters that will come to defend those rights. And so it will be very important, I think, depending on the outcome of that federal election, the types of protests we see, right? If the government shifts to the right at the federal level, like it's doing at the provincial level, uh, you will see a lot more sort of climate justice protesters, uh, labor union protesters, all sorts of, of new sort of actors coming back into the into the mainstream media protesting. And if you shift to the left, as Mr. Trudeau has done, you get the yes. converse. You will get, yeah, the Yellow Vest protesters, which are big in Alberta. I've seen them in, in Winnipeg, uh, in Manitoba as well. Um, the, the, the sort of pro-pipeline protesters will be out there. It will, it, it will be definitely interesting, uh, whichever way. Well, I'm definitely a pro-pipeline protester, so I, I have a role to play in all of this, I guess. Exactly. Um, is democracy 
in danger because of protest, or is democracy sustained because of the right to protest? Yeah, if there's one message that comes out of this this book is that protest is good for democracy, whether it's on the political left or the political right. It's so important uh, to sort of hold governments to account and to demand that governments respond to the interests of civil society, regardless of their ideology and orientation. So it's well known that those who are inside the political system always resist change, and those on the outside push for change. It's so important that people that are not in the political system are, are in the streets demonstrating and, and putting new ideas, new energy uh, onto the table, and that governments actually listen to them and, and try to incorporate their demands. What do you do in an uncivil society where you have polarization and, and very significant polarization? One side says, I want this. The other side says, I want this. And never the two shall meet in the middle. Yeah, that's where it gets uh, problematic, and that, again, uh, sort of the type of democracy or the regime in power uh, makes a difference. So a uh, democratic government has many more options, right? They can try to co-opt uh, protests or channel them or create counter-frames or try to or sometimes even ignore them. Uh, more authoritarian governments, especially in the global south, have a much smaller toolkit that sometimes they'll go right to repression. Right and 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 co-optation. So it it does matter the government that's in power um, to the actual outcome, and and it does shape whether protests turn violent or not. Right, if the policing model is one that's much more um, known as strategic incapacitation model, where they have no interest in and in communicating or dialogue with the protesters, then it, it often turns very violent. Yeah, I so keep it thinking. Does matter. I keep thinking about Venezuela. Yes. Very disturbing. Extremely That's very highly polarized yeah. and very difficult. In about 30 seconds, is there an example of a public protest that turned out the way people wanted it and ultimately turned out to be better for, for everyone? Yes, because a lot of people like to make fun of the Occupy Wall Street movement, right, because it was known as a leaderless movement. It didn't have a list of demands, and that was sort of part of the point. It was sort of pre, it's known as prefigurative. They sort of perform the democracy that they want. But in the end, their main message about the 99% versus the 1% really got taken up by Bernie Sanders, right? And even the whole, his campaign slogan, I feel the burn, was actually an Occupy Wall Street activist who coined that phrase. So here it is, 2019. And he's still talking about the 1%. So he had a huge influence. Uh, and he's almost mainstream within the Democratic Party in the U.S. So it really did, in unintended ways, actually shape the way uh, the current dialogue is. So okay. it really did have an impact, even though people like to think that they were just camping in the park for three months. Bernie Sanders uh, is an interesting example because he's yeah. he's in the 1% of the 1%, so yeah. he's doing very <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> Professor Rice, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. You do excellent work. Thank you. Yeah, Professor Roberta Rice, the book is Protest and Democracy. Protest and Democracy. The growing Ebola threat in Africa, the threat which has now crossed from the Democratic Republic of the Congo into Uganda, not yet to be an international health emergency. The World Health Organization acted similarly in 2014 and was criticized then for its slow response. Trish Newman is a nurse. She's uh, also the coordinator for Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, looking after patients and looking after the Ebola outbreak. Ms. Newport joins us again on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Newport, thank you very much for the time, and what's your response to the World Health Organization's decision? Thanks for taking the time to talk with me, Roy. Um, 
whether you're calling it an international public health emergency or not, what we need to be looking at is what we can do to improve the situation that exists right now. Right now, the epidemiological situation for the Ebola outbreak is really concerning. Continues to have almost half of all the new cases are community deaths, which means people are dying in the community. This means that they're not able to access care, and the longer that someone has Ebola in the community, the higher the chance is that they're going to infect other people. Um, And of all the new cases every week, almost half of them are not listed as contacts, Um, which means that we don't really have a visibility over who is at risk of getting sick. And that's really concerning. And uh, this this time around, it's more difficult, is it not, to control the, uh, the Ebola outbreak because of internal strife within the country. For sure. The areas where there's Ebola right now in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, so in tree in North Kivu, these are areas that have had years and years long history of conflict. And so there's already a lot of turmoil in those areas. There's already a lot, a lot of mistrust towards the government. And so that creates a lot of challenges and problems in developing trust for the community to have trust in the Ebola response. You know, when someone gets sick with Ebola, you're supposed to make a list of everyone that was in close contact with them, and then you follow all of those people for 21 days to see if they're going to get sick or have the first symptoms or signs of Ebola. And so if everything's working well, all of your new cases will come from this list of contacts. But you can imagine in a place where people are nervous or don't have full trust or faith in the government, if you have government workers coming and asking them for a list of everyone that's close to them in their lives, you can imagine why they're not giving that whole list. And so we need to develop trust um, within the community for them to be able to feel safe and for them to feel implicated in the Ebola response. You're clearly worried by what you're seeing on the ground. We're very worried about what we're seeing on the ground, for sure. I mean, people are taking, the government, other organizations, they're taking big steps to work to try to engage with the community more, to build trust. But when we look at the figures, we know that we have to do a lot more to be able to really gain the trust of the community and have them feel implicated. And so these these cases that went into Uganda... Um, in a way, it's not so surprising because of this lack of visibility and this lack of trust that's existing. And we've been saying for a long time, outbreaks are unpredictable, especially with this kind of data. So it means that you can have spread in different areas, whether it's in different provinces or whether it's going across the border. Right. Trish, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate you talking to us about this. It's hugely important and hugely concerning. And it, uh, thank you for all the work that you do with Metz Sans Frontier. Thank you very much, Roy. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. We'll stay in touch. Trish Newport Thanks. from uh, Metz Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, the uh, Ebola outbreak is growing in numbers and has crossed the border into Uganda. Chronic pain patients. Just over the last few weeks, we've talked to two patients who are living very, very difficult, very, very difficult lives because they're being denied by their doctors 
pain medication, which have been prescribed to them for long periods of time. Happen to be opioid pain medication. But when you're living with massive chronic pain that destroys your quality of life, that actually, and research shows this, drives some people to suicide, the opioid medication is what saves your life. And I had a, for some people, still memorable interview with Jane Philpott when she was the Federal Minister of Health and came on this program and they were going to tell me that I was wrong in what I was saying about chronic pain, that patients should get their opioid medications and not have them arbitrarily stopped by doctors who are afraid of their colleges of physicians and surgeons, their provincial, provincial licensing bodies. Those bodies say, oh, no, we're not pushing uh, doctors around. No, 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 no. Well, the uh, Chronic Pain Association of Canada, and let me just read a little bit from a news release they put out this week. A large group of patients meeting in Edmonton this week has asked the Alberta Health Minister to investigate the medical regulator that licenses the province's MDs for its unwarranted and secret cautioning and sanctioning of doctors trying to prescribe for Albertans suffering severe and intractable pain and unable to live without medically managed opiates. Thousands of Albertans with pain have lost their specialists and primary care because the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta has forced doctors to stop providing opiates. The province's pain specialists are retiring in large numbers, citing college intimidation. In March, the college closed an Edmonton pain practice, throwing nearly a 1,000 patients out of care. The college denies involvement. That's from Barry Ulmer, the executive director of the Pen Chronic Pain Association of Canada. I've been trying to arrange for a live interview with the uh, regulator of, or the director of, or the president of, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. They approached me, uh, it was about a year ago, or a year and a half ago, and said an interview with their president would be a good idea, and when I agreed to it, they backed off. And they will not respond to any, uh, any subsequent prodding for me for them to come on the show and make their case. I heard from my broadcast colleague at CJOB Winnipeg, afternoon host at CJOB, Hal Anderson. About three weeks ago, I received an email from Hal, and I asked him to join me on the program. Good to talk to you, Hal. Thank you for taking the time on what I, I hope is a nice weekend in Manitoba. I am speaking to you from my cottage in Winnipeg Beach on the shores of Lake Winnipeg. It's sunny and 20, perfect weather for a big guy like me, Roy. And let me just say, first of all, thank you for talking so much about this issue. Um, that's why I emailed you and reached out to you, because you've been a real advocate on this, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Hal. And what's the story you can share with us? Well, I, I have a family member, and uh, that family member is, is scared to death. Um, in the early 80s, she was in a, a terrible car accident. Uh, she's had uh, close to a, a dozen back surgeries. Uh, nerves have been cut over the years. Uh, parts of her back have been fused improperly over the years. And the only uh, quality of life that she enjoys now is because of the opioids that she takes. And she is in the process now of, of going through uh, the analysis, I guess, where, uh, you know, she works with a, a pain expert and a pharmacist and her doctor, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, so far, uh, she's hopeful, but 
but she is. She she's scared to death that she's going to lose whatever quality of life she has uh, because of these these opioids. So, if I get this correctly, she's been prescribed the opioid medication for some period of time. Many years, yes. Many years. And it's worked. And it helps her have some quality of life. Doesn't make life perfect, as many patients have told me, but it makes life livable. Right. Yeah, far from perfect, but it, it does give her some quality of life, yes. I'm going to be speaking tomorrow with a pain patient who went to a hospital emergency room when she was suffering chest pain. And they knew that she was a chronic pain patient, and they sent her away as a drug seeker. They sent her straight into a heart attack. So this is the kind of thing that does happen to chronic pain patients. Has your family member run into any issues where the medical system has tried to force her off uh, the, the opioids or, or, or taper them uh, arbitrarily? Not yet, um, but that's a worry because she hears the guests that you had on your show, Roy, and, and she reads uh, the articles and she sees the television reports. And so, uh, understandably, uh, you know, she's concerned. She does not want that to happen to her because, as you talked of, you know, uh, I mean, some people find themselves, uh, if we're to believe what they say, and I have no reason not to believe what, what they say, that they, uh, in some cases, do take their own life or they go to the streets looking for the drugs that give them relief from their chronic pain. And, and that's the last thing I want to happen, uh, you know, to this family member who I love dearly. So she's now working with her family doctor. Right. With a pharmacist. Yes. And, and a third party? And a pain expert. Uh, it's a process. Uh, my understanding is it's a process. Uh, that uh, uh, somebody who's been prescribed uh, opioids, uh, I guess, uh, in this case, over a long period of time, um, uh, to see if there are some things that can be done uh, differently. I I just want to say about opioids, everything good, Roy, um, comes with some bad. And uh, I know uh, with my family member, the opioids can do good. I understand there are people out there selling this stuff on the streets. I understand there are abusers. I understand there are people that are dying of overdoses from this. Um, I, I don't doubt any of that, but I think everything good comes with some bad. We need to control the bad without forgetting about the people that are helped by the good that these medications do. And that's my worry. I I haven't seen that yet with my family member, but I worry about that because I hear the many stories and and several of those, uh, you know, stories and people have been on your show. They have, and they're they're heartbreaking. Like the 61-year-old retired surgical nurse who was on three weeks ago, uh, her opioid medications were significantly tapered involuntarily. And she, her pain became so intolerable that she was thinking of doing one of two things. Number one, she was going to go out to the streets and buy heroin and inject it into her. And she said that's the most uh, impossible situation for her, given her life practice as a medical professional. Either that or she was going to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And I saw her tweet, and I got in touch with her, and we're still uh, touching base with one another. And she's terrified. We also spoke with a 31-year-old Canadian who coaches at the high school level, 
sports, but who has a long-standing condition which causes tremendous pain. His doctor, who was prescribing him opioids that made life livable, allowed him to get out and do things. His doctor is retiring, and the new doctor who's coming in said to him, there's no way I'm going to give you the same level of medication that the retiring doctor has given you. So the arbitrary decision is made without the patient's input. And this patient, this, this young man who was on the air with us, said, I think this is going to be my last spring. Why are we hearing this kind of talk? Why? Yeah, yeah. Why are people it's, being it's, terrified? Right. And, and that's my worry. And as I said, I, I haven't seen that yet in, in this case that I'm speaking about with you today. But I do worry about doctors feeling pressure. If you read what the physicians of college and surgeons uh, says, and I've read uh, extensively uh, on the website here in, in Manitoba, they can't, doctors can't say, I'm not going to treat you. And they can't uh, force patients to uh, uh, drastically cut back on their, on their opioids uh, if that's what has been happening over several years. And I'm not here to say that doctors are doing it. I worry about that, though. I worry if doctors feel pressure. I worry if what I read about on the website for the College of Physicians and Surgeons here in Manitoba isn't necessarily happening. And then I go back to what I hear on your show and I read elsewhere and I see elsewhere and I worry that there's a disconnect there somewhere. You know, what they say and what's happening, at least in some cases, doesn't seem to match up. Hal, I've talked to doctors. In fact, we had uh, about two years ago, can't get them to come on the air anymore because they're terrified of losing their, losing their licenses. But we've, t- we've talked yeah. to doctors on this program who've said, yeah, we're under pressure not to provide the, uh, the opioid medication, under pressure from the colleges. The colleges say that's not happening. The doctors tell you something entirely different. And patients have mm-hmm. told us that their doctors have said, we're not going to lose our licenses over you. It, it, yeah. and, and as you said, there are two sets of uh, uh, issues here. You have what I call, and I'm not saying this in a, in a, in a, in a derogatory manner or a dismissive yeah. manner, you have the generic drug addict who buys the drugs on the street, who's buying the illegal fentanyl, buying the illegal drugs. And that yeah. drug addict is suffering in many cases, far too many cases, negative consequences, sometimes an overdose death. On yeah. the other side of the equation, you have the, the patient, the chronic pain patient, who's living with a very controlled reality of an opioid medication prescription that's gone on for years. That's the person who's being denied the medication. It makes no sense. And you cannot join the two as, as, as it seems like the federal government and some medical groups are trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm hopeful that the case that I'm talking about today with my family member does not go that way, but it's obvious that it's happening in other cases. You know, uh, to use a a line that my dad used to use, you know, uh, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater here, it seems, you know, Um, the pendulum has swung too far. And the unfortunate thing is that as that pendulum swings too far, there are people that are benefiting from opioids that are not getting the care that they need, the pain relief. That This is chronic pain, you know? And we're not talking about somebody who goes in for a surgery or a knee replacement. And I'm talking about somebody who's been on these pills for decades, 20 years, you know, a horrible car crash that goes back 30 years, even more than that. Um, there are cases that have to be treated differently, and I'm just not convinced 
that's happening in every case. Your family member is afraid for a reason. She's afraid because she's heard what's going on, and she should not. She should not for a moment be afraid that right. such a situation could happen to her. Should never ever feel that way. Yeah, and I and I and I so hope it doesn't. I mean, she's into her seventies now. Uh, this is uh, this woman is a wonderful, strong, passionate woman, and her life has uh, not been what it could have been, Roy, for a long time. And for her now to be worried about this, it's heartbreaking. She has a great advocate in you. Well, and and we all have a great advocate in you. So keep telling the stories, Roy, please. I will. Thank you, Hal, for doing this. Thank you. Al Anderson from CJOB Radio in Winnipeg. Afternoon host at our chorus or global news radio, CJOB in Winnipeg. There are so many stories. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.